0: Welcome to Go To Gal, episode number one seventy six. As always, I'm your host, Jacqueline Malone, and today I'm dusting off my metaphorical metaphor. It sounds like I said meta, metaphorical. I don't know metaphorical. I need to enunciate better. Apparently, my metaphorical magic eight ball and shaking it up, and not really. Although I guess it's metaphorical, so I guess that's the whole point of not really. So. If I were to shake this metaphorical Magic 8-Ball, I feel like it would say and say, "Okay, what is the state of our online business, our online education space? Is it changing? Is it staying the same? I feel like I'd get that little blue lit up upside down triangle coming back at me with like, yes, like your prediction is accurate. Or I don't know. What did the actual Magic 8-Ball say? Options look Good. <laughs> I'm looking at ones online right now. I don't think that's a thing. Science point to yes. Yes. Science point to yes that things are a change in. I don't know if you feel it. I definitely have been seeing and feeling it for a while. And when I saw that this was something that that destiny our guest today was talking about, it really piqued my interest because I've been thinking about these things, processing it a little bit of like what is the state of our industry and how is it changing? how is it evolving and where is it going next? I always like thinking about things like that and having those conversations with my clients and friends and mentors and peers and all of the things right but let's have those conversations on the podcast because I'm sure you are thinking about them too and if you're not thinking about them like let's get thinking about it right you want to be looking into the future and and noticing what's happening now and how is it starting to shift and change so you can you know not that you're gonna base all of your business decisions off of a prediction but you do want to have that outlook of where are things going to next so you can if you want to weave those things into your business. Now, maybe you have an online course or program now. Maybe you don't and you're thinking about adding it as a revenue stream. Either way, I think you'll be really just, I don't know, thought provoked. Is that, can I use it in that tense (laughs) by this conversation? And maybe it's going to validate some of the same things that you've been thinking you're seeing. Maybe it's going to open your eyes up to something you hadn't thought before. And I even just think having these conversations or listening to these conversations gets your mind to just start thinking a little bit more critically about what's going on, seeing opportunities you may have missed, or at least plant those seeds. So as things are happening around you in the coming days, weeks, months, and years, you can start putting some of these pieces together and noticing these patterns and trends for yourself. So I'm not going to get into it too, too much, but I'm excited to share this conversation with you, Destiny and I, took it from a whole bunch of different angles to just pull it back and be like, okay, what's the state of the industry now? What are we seeing? What are we feeling? What are we thinking? Where is it going? All the things. But before I get to the actual conversation, let me formally introduce you to Destiny. Destiny Berman is a seven-figure launch strategist who specializes in working with offline business owners, entrepreneurs, experts, and educators to market and monetize their courses. Her clients benefit from her innovative and modern approach to marketing, as well as her 15 years of prior experience running large-scale marketing campaigns in Silicon Valley for brands like Twitter, HP, and Microsoft. Through her courses, she has taught hundreds of students in 23 countries across the globe. Destiny's expertise has been featured in media outlets, including Business Insider, Forbes, Greatest, Digital Marketer, and more. She is also the host of her forthcoming podcast, Make the Shift. All right, let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Destiny. Destiny, I'm so excited to have you here today. Same here. I'm
1: thrilled to be here.
0: Before we dive into you and everything you have going on now, take us back to when you were growing up. What were you the go-to gal for back then?
1: You know, what's funny was when I saw this question, what dropped into mind was when I was in junior high school. And I was the person that friends or acquaintances would come to me if they wanted a creative solution. So if they were trying to figure out a problem and they wanted a resourceful, creative way to address it, they would come to me. And I didn't realize it at the time that I would then be using that skill you know, for work and business, but that's always stuck with me. And it's something that I actually enjoy doing, coming up with an idea for something that may seem challenging.
0: Yes. Oh, I love that. You know, this is something I've been thinking about with my own kids. Do you think this is off topic, but because you bring it up, I, I have to ask. Do you think that is just the way you are? Or was there something in your childhood that really helped you develop that creative problem solving skill set? Ooh.
1: I I think it's a combination. So if you believe in astrology, if you look at genes. There is an element inside the way I operate inside my blueprint, if you will, that is towards resourceful problem solving. I mean, I think I've taken every assessment test, you know, I'm the creator and like this one and whatnot. So I do believe that shows in how I'm made up. (laughs) And I was born in an environment where we did have to be creative, where we did have to be resourceful. And so it's an element of nature and nurture. That's what I believe.
0: It makes a lot of sense. And yes, that's with, with two little ones. I'm like, that's something I really want to instill in them, you know, kindness, but also just that resourcefulness. And yeah, I think if we start that from a young age, but you're right, there are certain things that some of us are just innately have in us, right? So developing those even further than you're able to quadruple down on your strength. So okay, so fast forward to today, tell us what do you do? And who do you help? So
1: I a Digital entrepreneur. I spent about 15 years before this working at companies here in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. And I wanted to work for myself. And that was a decision that I had to really choose because it was a lot to leave that world. And so now it's about six years in, and I focus on helping business owners and experts and specialists be able to scale their life's work with online courses and schools. And I feel really lucky to be working in this industry at this time where things have only expanded and online education and learning has become so widely received at all levels of institution. But yeah, I really believe in self-education. I really believe in personal growth. And I think that learning online is one of the ways to do so.
0: Absolutely. Now, one of the things that I find really interesting about what you do is how you position it as adding a revenue stream to an existing business. So what does that look like? I guess at what point in businesses should people think about adding a revenue stream? Yeah, I guess let's start there. At what point in business should someone think about because it's almost like a side hustle to your business. (laughs) But it's also important to diversify and to have multiple income streams. So when do you think is the best time to be thinking about that? So
1: there was pre-COVID and there was, you know, COVID, right? So during COVID, I think we all saw as business owners, regardless of what kind of business you're in, you needed a digital revenue stream to strengthen and to keep your business going. But, you know, even before that, what we're seeing with a lot of educators, practitioners, service-based providers, even speakers, like they're typically maxed out. So if you hit a point where you're maxed out in your existing business, you can't take on any more one-on-one clients, you can't do any more workshops around the world, you can't do any more keynote speaking around the world, well, then it's time to really leverage that content and that expertise that you have. I think that one of the things that comes up for busy business owners and individuals is, well, there's not enough time. But what happens is that if you're willing to invest in the time up front, it's just like, I don't know, it's like compounding interest, where you're taking, well, you're spending time delivering today, putting it into a format that can now leverage your time endlessly. So it requires upfront to create that ongoing revenue stream.
0: So true. So what type of models, I'm like business model, would these different revenue streams be? Are you talking online courses? Is there a wide variety? Do you focus on one type? Is there a type you think is the best? What does that look like? Yeah, it's a broad
1: topic because we have the different course models. And then of course, we have different go-to market strategies of how you want to even get it out there. But typically what I recommend is starting with a course that is closest to how you serve your existing clientele, your customers. And you start with a course. And then what I specialize is in building out to a bigger program in school. So we start with one course launch, then how can we build this into either a bigger online program or add an online program. And typically my clients have an offer stack within their school. It doesn't mean that you have to go out and create five different programs. It's actually starts with one into two or three core offers. And now you've got this education platform that serves adjacent to your existing business. And many times you end up shifting over to mostly online or keeping some of the offline one-to-one work, but now you have freedom and you have options.
0: Now, when you say school, what do you, can you just describe that a little bit more detail? I'm like, okay, I I see the different offers, but is this, is someone enrolling and they have access to all of this or is this, are they doing one offer and then you have another offer for them after that? What does that look like for it to be defined as a school?
1: I love that question, and I would say that I'm probably more casual in how I define school. I have a lot of clients and students who have, say, like a level one and a level two, where you have to do level one to move into level two. I've had some clients who have uh, rolled out certification programs and work Professional Development. But when I say school, I mean... A core program that has different variations that can serve different segments of your audience. So an entry level, a deeper, more advanced, and then sometimes a more B2B professional certification track.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense in how you defined it. And I think even that mindset shift as you're adding on another revenue stream of thinking of it like a school right? Can help someone visualize that adding a school to our business and maybe take it a little bit more seriously, but also think about that student experience and journey and how the content you're creating is really helping them like a school would. So I think that's a great terminology to use. I hadn't, I haven't heard it used exactly like that before. So very creative. Love it. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So all of this to say, I love the contribution you're making to this industry. And I know a lot has changed COVID. I, I don't think we're quite post COVID yet, but now we're like on the other side, maybe hopefully of this bell curve situation. And things are certainly different now than they were six months ago or a year ago. Right. And are going to continue to be different looking at 2021 and the next, you know, six months, maybe a little bit longer. What are you seeing changes that have happened this year that are still happening in this industry? So one, I think that, you
1: know, based on what I can see, the creator economy, the knowledge industry, is only going to get fuller and bigger, you know, in a good way. There'll be more people coming online to become creators. There'll be more people coming online to teach and to leverage their professional experience. So the question isn't, well, will I become a online teacher or an online creator? The question is a matter of how and when. Because to some degree... As an expert, as a professional, we will all have an online course in the next five, maybe seven years. And if you look at all the different technology and the tools are coming out every day to support the micro-entrepreneur, all of this falls under the passion economy, right? So you have people who want to pursue their passions, who have expertise, and want to teach online. And so I think it's really incredible and it's really exciting And at the same time, we also need to figure out for ourselves, one, are we committed to doing this? And two, again, it's not a matter of yes or no, it's a matter of when. And so then it becomes, okay, well, how do I want to do this? Do I want to become a social media influencer building audience? Or do I want to be launching my courses and my programs, building up this revenue stream? And then how do I want to go about it efficiently? So I feel like this is where the conversation is now driving and then choosing two clear strategies, two, one or two clear approaches that you're going to stick to. It. Because one of the biggest things I see is that like people start to try everything. And well, that's not going to work, <laughs> or, or they go on they say, like, well, I'm going to launch a Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and a podcast. And that's not going to work either. We just don't have time for that. And so one to two channels, one or two approaches that we're going to stick to and experiment. But I do believe that it is critical to get it off the brand more than ever.
0: Yes, I, and I completely agree having been in this industry for a while and seeing the changes and seeing the direction it's going in, it does feel like there's more opportunity than ever. COVID perhaps accelerated that right with showing that, you know, we can be doing all of this from home. One of the things that I am hearing a lot, I'm like, okay, there's so many ways we can tackle this. One of the things I'm hearing a lot is people seeing all this growth and thinking that that means it's a missed opportunity or that it's too competitive, it's too saturated. And that maybe if they don't already have that program launched that they've missed the boat. What do you what do you say to those people?
1: Ooh, I love that you brought this up, <laughs> because indeed, there are a lot of individuals and business owners who are feeling like, oh, I should have started this five years ago. Well, guess what? I should have started my YouTube channel two years ago. There's always something Same. more, enjoy, <laughs> right? When it comes to online, I should have launched my podcast. I should have been more active on Instagram, your pick. So the good news is it's a very normal thought process. And with online, because things were shifting, evolving, and growing so much, it's just not possible to be so caught up on it. So- One, it's normal. We're going to put that aside. Two, there are billions of people online who want to learn. And there is this concept years ago, the concept was a thousand true fans. There's a newer concept that's being discussed now with a hundred true fans.
0: There are more tools. Right? Tell me about this. I haven't heard. I I am familiar with thousand true fans. For someone who doesn't know if they haven't heard of that concept before, tell us what that is. But I'm excited about this new concept. (laughs)
1: So basically the concept is, look, you, instead of going out and building this massive email list and building a huge social media following, how can you cultivate and deepen the relationships of a thousand true fans so that they are investing in your offers and your services and your programs? But as the online world has gotten more, there's more people online, there are more tools to create engagement online, and there are more tools to become creators. Now the discussion is around, well, how can I create 102 fans of higher paying value? And if true fans invest $1,000 a year with you, that's $100,000. And that's to me really exciting because we're not thinking about going out to create, okay, I'm going to need hundreds of thousands or even tens of thousands of social media followers. It's about, okay, how can I put a high value, engaged, creative content that I can now funnel into a purposeful, intentional offer? So just kind of coming back to your question though, in terms of, okay, you've got billions of people for you to have a six, seven figure online business requires creating a teeny portion of true engaged fans who want what you need. And so it's not too late. If anything, the tools have caught up, technology gets caught. Up. I mean, look at where Stripe has gone as a company. So my pushback on that is that it's not too late and it's a normal thought process and the time to get started is now. <laughs>
0: Yes, I couldn't agree more. And I hadn't heard that put as the 100 true fans. But I think the 1000 true fans concept was initially developed for maybe more of the music industry or artist industry, right? And it was like, okay, so if you have these 1000 true fans that are going to go to how many of your concerts, and they're going to buy your t shirt, they're going to buy your album, and they're going to buy all this stuff. And let's say they're going to spend $100 over the course of a year, like that's your $100,000. So for you to flip that around and say, okay, no, but if you're able to offer more value and charge $1,000, which isn't even considered high ticket in our industry. So hearing that breakdown and saying, wow, okay, well, taking this math, if you had a hundred true fans and you were selling something at $10,000, like there's your million, right? So these aren't crazy numbers and being able to to have that thousand dollar offer or that $10,000 offer, you don't even need as big of an audience. I think what a lot of us have realized over the years too, with the thousand true fans, which is also true for the hundred true fans concept is you need more followers and more subscribers than that. So to have a thousand true fans doesn't mean having a thousand email subscribers, right? You may have 10,000 or 20,000 or depending on some us, maybe even a hundred thousand right, subscribers to have those thousand that are opening all your emails that are really engaged, depending on how engaged your audience is. You need usually a bigger audience than that for that piece to be really engaged. So you shrinking down that number to a hundred, is like, okay, you could have a thousand followers and a hundred of them could be that category, right? Exactly, exactly. And I would, I 100% agree with
1: that. I mean, to have a hundred fans who don't need that big of a list. And in fact, what's really exciting for existing business owners who already have clients and customers and students, if you're, especially if you're already teaching and whatnot, you actually have a bigger fan base to monetize with online offers that you realize. And I've seen this happen so many times with clients or members inside our programs where they think they don't have an email list. And they're like, well, I don't even have anyone on social media. But guess what? You've had 500 people that you've worked with one-on-one in the last years. Those people know you, trust you, and they are ready to buy. And do you think we can convert 100 people out of those 500? Yes, we can. And so I feel like that's how we want to be thinking about our audiences in in our communities. Whereas Instead of feeling like, well, I just don't have anyone online. We have more people than we realize if you have been
0: in business. That's so true. Yes. Looking outside of just the traditional ways, maybe that people are measuring this because absolutely all those relationships count and that's such a good way to look at it. Okay. So thinking still about trends in this industry, what else are you seeing? I have a few things that I'm seeing that I would love to ask you about, but I'm just curious if there's anything else that you're like, okay, this is definitely a trend I want to share.
1: So one is focusing on deeper content with community. And that's why I think the 100 true fans with a higher value, one providing higher value, but also creating that higher value customer is important. Because I believe that the whole having a huge course with just thousands and thousands of students inside a group program, that's shifting away. It doesn't mean that for some of the top leaders in the industry who have been doing this for a long time, that they're providing value. It doesn't mean that that doesn't work. But generally, people are looking for more community for more connection and deeper content versus just feeling like they're lost in the sea of people inside this group program that's one second thing is engaging with your community in multiple formats and this does not have to be crazy it means a short video paired with a short email and paired with say a blog article That is all created from that same point of content. But people need to see you and hear you and learn from you in different ways more than ever because there's also a lot of content online. And so between trying to capture their attention between trying to get them to stick, you want to have, even if it's the same piece of teaching across multiple formats, more than ever. And then for those of you who have launched before, what I would say is if you've been focused on one channel, say Facebook and Instagram, you want to go into YouTube and vice versa, multi-channel for the more experienced course launchers. That's also extremely important for now. and (laughs) beyond.
0: Yes. I love how you say though, to really nail that one or two first and then expand because it, it's overwhelming and you know even with the team especially with the team it's overwhelming because it's like who's doing what and how are you going to do this for me on my behalf like that's hard too and so yes like being able to go deep in those one or two platforms and then adding on but if you are at that point it does make sense to add another channel there's a lot of power in that but don't feeling like you have like you have to do it right out of the gate because that's just overwhelming exactly
1: And if you're overwhelmed then you just freeze and then we don't do anything anything, which isn't helpful to our work either. So
0: exactly. Now I've heard a lot of people talk about, it's interesting. So for years and years, it's been niche and then niche down again, you know, and then again, and, and this year I've heard a lot of people saying not to niche anymore, which scares me um so I'm like what does that what does that even mean oh so I don't know I have some thoughts on this but I'm like okay maybe you have a different perspective (laughs) I love that we are a bit newer to each other and you have a different angle on the industry than I do too so it's good to sometimes put these things together of like okay what are you seeing on your side of the internet what are you seeing (laughs) on yours and see where things overlap what are you seeing in terms of niching So I think that,
1: you know, instead of only thinking about niching down, it's about what your specialization is. And so what I like to say is that now if you're willing to go deeper, you can go bigger. And the analogies that I like to use are, if you think about how Amazon as a platform started with books, Uber started with black cars, and there are so many other examples, you know, Zappos started with shoes. So what we want to think about is how can we focus on an area of specialization That will have us be known for that. And when you specialize, that forces you to go narrow in your niche in who you serve. A common example would be a yoga teacher. There are so many yoga teachers. So we think about someone who's willing to go specialize yoga for diabetes. Boom. That forces you to focus on a specific audience group. It has you be known for a category and a specialization. And that is much more effective online with so much more content online these
0: days. I completely agree. I feel like as we have more people out there offering things right and sharing their expertise in order for us to stand out in what might feel saturated, right, to be able to be really specific about what we do and who we do it for allows us to stand out and and allows us to be that much more referable. I like to say taggable for what it is, right. And it builds that trust in the person who's investing with us, right. I started to see this trend a couple years ago. I like to use my cousin as an example. Cause I'm like, it's just outside of our industry. So sometimes if I'm sharing a story about a client or, you know, it's like a little bit more skewed. And so I like to use her as an example because it's just not at all in our industry. She's a hairstylist. She does my hair not as often now as she used to. But back when this first happened, I was there every six weeks. She had me captive for a couple hours, right? She could ask me whatever she wants. <laughs> she was wanting to grow on Instagram and we were talking about it a little bit and I offered to make some introductions for her. I told her some people her to follow. And when I went back six weeks later, she had purchased a course on Instagram and I'm like, oh, like who'd you buy from? And I'd never heard of this person before, right? And I was like, oh, okay. And at first I was like, oh, I wonder why she didn't like go check out this person that I told her about or something, right? She's like, oh, well, they had a program that was specific for Instagram, for hairstylists. And I'm like, that's it right there. Like that is what's going to be happening across every industry because when someone's investing in something, they're like, is it going to work for me? So if you're able to, with your positioning show, oh, this literally is going to work for you. Like you are who we created it for. You just have that built-in confidence that's going to get the attention and they're probably willing to pay more for it too because they know it's specialized information. Exactly. 100% agree. I love that example. (laughs) Well, I'm like it's just so like outside of everything, and I'm like, okay, this is this is happening. But I will say, I'm I'm not producing content for TikTok. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm not sure if I will or not. I'm tempted, but I've been on just consuming content, and a lot of people on there have very weird niches, and I say weird in the most loving way possible. But it's <laughs> so it's like a combination of like instead of like yoga and uh, diabetes or something, it's like yoga and like Shit's Creek, and I'm like, <laughs> that's my niche. Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. I just started doing like our workout videos to Hamilton like that is my niche. I'm yeah. um, like I fit your demographic here. So I do think in other I don't know outside maybe of the traditional what we normally see on Instagram content people mm-hmm. are maybe having a little bit more fun and doing different things I guess with their niches on other platforms. Have you seen stuff like that? I agree.
1: And I think that TikTok in particular it's it's soon newer and its identity is still getting shaped and defined. And so their users are also being more experimental, right? Because it is still in that experimental stage just very much like Clubhouse. They're still trying to figure out I and mean, the product is soon needs to get matured. So it's interesting because at one point Facebook was new and at one point Instagram was new. And then I think as the platform matures, then Either the users or the way we use it also just shifts with it as well. But I would agree that on the newer platforms, it's very experimental and very narrow because you want to get discovered.
0: Yes, and there's wow. probably some industries that just just works better in than others. Like, how you can be <laughs> like I like I teach marketing with Shit's Creek memes. Like, can that be? Believe me, if I could find a way to make this a Hamilton podcast that was also related to being known as an expert, I would do it. I'd be all in. <laughs> I, love it. I love it. But with some industries, I think it's just easier to bring in these other concepts. I guess. Totally. Totally. Get a little bit more creative. Is there anything else that comes to mind, Jones, oh, um, that you're noticing? Talked about multi
1: different formats, specializing. So thanks for bringing that up and uh being out there. I think those are I mean there's definitely more, but I feel
0: like those are the key points. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I've been noticing this year is my and I'm sure because I buy these products that Facebook knows this about me and shows me more of my own reality. So my my I might be slightly skewed in my own echo chamber with this, but there are a ton of these small digital product offers. These low-price templates or I don't even know. (laughs) Templates or systems are right for these like low price under $50 offers. And what used to be something that someone might charge $500 or $1,000 for, they're now offering in a low price product for under $50. And I have one of these myself, which which does really well. So I'm seeing this as a trend in it. Part of it feels like this like democratization of information, but now it's like even more information overload. And it's interesting to see, well, how does this impact the course industry? Because now this information that was just getting saved for these courses that would have been $500, $1,000 or $2,000, I think for a number of years, it was the standard in our industry to charge $2,000 for a course. Now we're having this saturation of low price offers that might impact. This is something what? I've been giving some thought to. So yeah, I'd love <laughs> to hear your thoughts on that.
1: So a couple of things. One, I do believe that's why creating that experience of a higher touch program and or the smaller groups with connection and community. I do think that's valuable. I think that over time, the next level will be outcome-based courses where there's more responsibility in both sides to get to the outcomes versus putting up offers out there $2,000, and that's just kind of what the industry standard is. I think that part of of the need to offer a $37, $27 offer with all this content is one, ad costs have been more expensive. So that's partly a response to ad costs to be able to acquire more leads, customers. And two, there is a lot of content out in the marketplace. And what used to be gated coaching programs. Now you can buy, you can buy a challenge for 97. You know, I've tested paid events at 97 and 197. So I do think that there's value in having someone take out a credit card and buy that content. I, however, don't believe in giving out all that content for a very low price because one, unless it's a live event, many times they don't show up it. many times they don't go through the content. And the truth is even for a live event, there's still like a no show percentage. So I believe that it's important to find that balance between how can we drive that conversion from a cold traffic and offer enough valuable content, but also create ways to engage to get them to consume the content and have proper follow-up sequences so they move into the next. Otherwise, we're just putting out information out there at a low cost, and that doesn't add value to anyone's life
0: or business so true. A hundred percent. I'm like, okay, there's so many places we can go, (laughs) but, (laughs) but yeah, it's like, okay. Like, yes. Having people just giving it all away, especially because it's true with those low price products, not. Not everyone, not even close to near everyone. I mean, even with live courses, completion rates are traditionally so low. So when you factor in digital products, it's it's an impulse buy. Half the time people probably even forget that they bought it. Oh, and it's, yeah, no, it's interesting. And that is definitely something, that's one of the reasons. So my low price offer is for podcast guesting to be a guest on podcasts. And so Mm -hmm. we were selling it just passively. And then we've started doing it as a live. I guess you could say event, you know, like, it's yeah. a, like a live challenge because I'm like, let's actually do this together. And it does. We have the, our completion rates have soared with it because you're actually giving people that urgency to prioritize it too, of like, okay, this is live and they get to keep it. It's not some pr- times people run it live and they take the content away. But I have found that that helps a lot. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a good. And like, I hadn't even thought about speaking to the fact that we're doing it like that now as as a strategy that's you know something that's really working but no I think there is there is something there of how can you especially if you're leading into another offer right, right. so if you're selling something right. passive and people aren't going through it and you want to get them into another offer that can be a challenge exactly and i think you know for business owner seals it's always finding that balance between that
1: active versus passive right so i call it the passive lead magnet the pdf that should running on the automation and then the active Lead Builder is the paid event, the live webinar, and so we want to find the right balance because it's not sustainable to be running three, five-day challenges all the time unless you truly have enough in you know, a front-end funnel traffic, but at the same time, you do need that and not only be relying on passive events and offers.
0: Yes, it's absolutely that balance. And even if you have the front-end traffic or you are running the ads to get that, just with two small children like it's just not the lifestyle that does not fit into it does not fit into the lifestyle I get it I
1: have a four and a half a four and a half year old son and so he keeps me plenty busy
0: (laughs) oh my little guy is turning five very soon so not much older than yours and yes yes oh yeah we have to also make sure that we're creating businesses that we actually want to be running right that we don't want to be running away from sometimes you end up creating a job that you don't really want inadvertently. Okay. So something else you had mentioned about this is the importance of the contrast, right? Of having an offer that is really outcome focused, that is high touch, high value, that they're having that experience. And I just wanted you to elaborate a little bit more on that because I think that is where the magic is. When everyone is selling and giving away information for free or selling it for so cheap, information becomes commoditized, but the transformation is really where the value is. And I think you hit the nail on the head with that. So yeah, what does that look like?
1: It's interesting because one, I have all my members write an outcome statement for their offer. So we call the program outcome statement and we have them work through a framework because it forces them to distill, okay, if someone showed up to do the work, what is the ultimate transformation they're going through? Whether it's opening up their relationships, whether it's self-discovery, whether it's weight loss. But what's even more important than that is there's a content and there's a curriculum. Sure, that's important, but it's also that support structure. And while we can't handhold in a way, like we can't do it for you. But I believe that having the container of a six-week program, a six-month program built in that matches the content with a support structure, whether it's group calls or layering in one-on-one or smaller cohort-based support, then you tie that in with more strategic visionary thinking that will improve the outcome of that student and we can't do it on our own that's why we're signing up to do these courses right or these programs so we can't do it on our own so the question becomes well what is the outcome we want to guide our student and client through and how can we build in leverage points that will support them through this transformation. And now with technology, we can do that. You can build in audio lessons that gets triggered. You can build in the right onboarding emails. And we're not even talking about the future where we're going to have AI learning that responds based on where you're at. So we're not quite there yet. But the point is, is that now we have all the technology to support our growth and our learning. And so we want to leverage that to create that support the community in addition to the content that will get them to the outcome. But I like to guide all my students and all my members. what is the outcome that we're getting them to? Because without that, having a great experience is good, but let's focus on the outcome. Let's focus on the results.
0: That clarity is really important. Is there something like a, a litmus test for, is that outcome clear enough or desirable enough? Because I also think one, I guess one other thing that we've seen in the past is kind of the overhyping of a six figure business or, or a six figure revenue stream or, or the overhyping of just offers, right? I think in the industry, we've seen a lot of over promising and under delivering. Right. So it's finding that balance of what is that desirable outcome that yeah. is also accurate, right? <laughs> and not misleading. At least for me, that's, that's something I really focus on. I love that question. And the
1: good news is that
0: if you have a
1: business, you actually have data to go back to. And so what I have my members go through is I have them list out their most favorite students and clients. And then we have them identify the patterns of what their outcomes were, And then we have them look at, well, why were they your favorite students and clients? Because there's typically a pattern between why you enjoyed working with them or teaching them and what they got from the program or from working with you, even if it's one-on-one work. Like that's actually where a lot of the juice starts. And so once we identify those patterns, it actually informs the desired outcome and realistic outcomes of your course. So it's not like it has to be that far away. I think that when it gets out of hand, from what I've seen, is because we think we have to do more in order to sell, and of course we have to be competitive and you know all that good stuff. But people know it when you're overpromising, and so even inside our business, we always have to look and evaluate. It's like, okay, is this really what we're committing to, right? And if they really show up are they the right fit? Because we sometimes we forget, we think it's all on us, but they also have to be your right fit, customer and student as well. And so it's an ongoing relationship. Are we attracting the right fit people? Are they the kind of business owner or individual that we are in a place that's well-suited to work with, even if it's for teaching? And then is what we're committing to, is that realistic? And so it's this ongoing process of starting with past data, and then always going back to the litmus test. Oh, well, what are the recent results? Like that will always tell
0: you the story and then you just keep adjusting as a business. That's a great framework for that. That yes, we can like do our own litmus test and be like, okay, this actually is the outcome. Yeah, <laughs> this is yeah. what we're promising and leading people there. Having that clarity with my own offers, making them more tangible More really specific. And because this is, I mean, one of my programs from the past that I credit to the name of this podcast, it was called Go To Gal. Not that it, I mean, it certainly did help people become the Go To Gal, but what is, what was the litmus test of becoming a Go To Gal? Right. It's so there's, there's a lot of ambiguity there. And so being, and that's not a program that I offer in its entirety anymore. It's, it's kind of built into and woven into other things. Right. When I think about that, it was too vague of a promise. Mm. And so being more specific, even if that was the name of the program, if I was going to offer it again, being more specific with, okay, what is that exact transformation in the eight weeks or the 12 weeks or whatever it is. Exactly. And in
1: the beginning, it may be harder to get specific and that's okay. You know, when you're working with people who already know you, you have flexibility to get this out there, to keep shaping it, to keep refining. It, and that's okay. We don't need to worry about, okay, I'm going to nail how specific it is. And then I'm going to launch. It's about, okay, I know enough and I'm not putting out anything that. It's half baked here. It's not sloppy. There's not going to be perfect. You know, I think I was quoting LinkedIn, the founder of LinkedIn, Reed Hoffman. He said that if you are not embarrassed by that first version product that you put out there, you've already launched too late. And so we just need to be careful of not trying to get so granular. And I, once I chose all my tech platforms and then I launched you're never going, this is a process that's really ultimately the bottom line.
0: Such a process and such a good reminder. And yes, it is the clarity comes from the action and, and from doing the same program multiple times, right? That ability to iterate and refine and make those improvements and adjustments, not just to the marketing, but to the offer itself, right? So, okay. My last question for you is maybe controversial. <laughs> Where this goes? I don't want to put you on the spot. So answers, you feel comfortable, but this is something I've been noticing a little bit. And as we talk about having more, this expansion of the creator community and having more people showing up and contributing and offering courses and showing up on these platforms and creating these really engaged communities in the contrast of seeing maybe the people who have been leading the industry and how maybe they haven't been showing up and the way that we would want them to, or it just feels different. And it almost feels like changing of the guard. <laughs> like there's uh-huh. this, like there's this current where sure some people have been really popular and are going to continue to grow, but it does feel like because there's so many changes, there's also this opening for new people to be coming in and rising up in this new regime of leadership or this new structure of leadership in our industry that maybe isn't even as structured and clicky, perhaps I say, as it's uh-huh. felt in the past. Have you seen any of this? Do you feel this too? It's okay if you don't, but I'm just curious as we're talking about trends.
1: Well, one, I, I will say that I don't follow a ton of people too closely from that respect. And also what I had done, and this may or may not be the most effective way, was all my marketing strategy has been adapted for my B2B experience from companies. So when I shifted, what I didn't do was I didn't go on and start taking all these different courses from leaders in the industry and then kind of merge into my offer. I took from a different world and then adapted to this community. So I would say that, um, I, And it's funny because when when people talk to me, I'm not a person who has the insider in all these different groups and whatnot. I was able to get access to more insiders um, information through masterminds and whatnot. And that was really great. But to your point about changing the guard and the landscape, shifting, I do see that happening because there are new offers and programs and teachers that are emerging. And while I believe that there will always be tight-knit groups and leaders in the industry, I do, you know, there's this whole other conversation around also from the same group that was talking about the 100 True Fans around the creator middle class and how can we empower more people to have businesses that can support and have a great lifestyle without it having to be the 7 eight figure thing. And so I do believe that, you know, if the creator middle class does get created then we will be moving into this world of it's not just all oh, the top percentage of people that own the industry and not, like dominate the industry it's that there's this whole segment of educators and online course creators that can build a fruitful business using all these different platforms and channels whether it be pantheon or podium or you know really making it on tiktok and i hope i pronounce those platforms correctly, because I'm always getting all the Ps confused, or like writing on Substack and choosing the right two or three channels for them beyond Facebook, beyond Instagram and YouTube and create that livelihood. And I do believe that there is a mass movement around that. It's kind of a long answer to your question.
0: Yes. Okay. Well, one, you've <laughs> just completely validated me asking this question because I was a little nervous. I'm like, I don't know what your answer is going to be. So we're going to find out. But, but this is, I think the importance of having real conversations with with real people and people outside of our networks too. And to see different perspectives, because one, I, I really value and appreciate you sharing your insight and perspective on all this. It makes a lot of sense to me and hearing your experience with it, it also just helped me put together some pieces too. Like for instance, you coming into this industry as an outsider, not taking all of the courses, right. And then creating yours, but you bringing your own expertise from this other industry. That's part of the magic that's happening, right? There's, this kind of like a running joke of like people how to make courses to create courses and they're teaching people how to, you know, it's like this pyramid scheme effect. Right. And it can be very meta for better or for worse. But I think because we've had such big leaders teaching so many people at scale about coaching or about course creation or about marketing, then those people start to teach their audience on the same thing and maybe in a similar way because they went through that program. And it does start to feel like a lot of the same. And that's really been kind of what's driving things. And as more people are coming in from outside, like yourself and bringing fresh perspectives in different ways, that's changing things up. And that's forcing other people to change in a good way. So I think explains a lot Of it, like, okay, well, that's cool. That's this like fresh perspective that's coming in. And I love this idea of the creator middle class. You know, when I was trying to explain to my grandma, who is almost 91, she's gonna be 91 very soon, about what I was doing with my business a few years back. You know, we were talking about her mom, my great grandmother, started a business from her kitchen back in the 30s. She was an amazing cook and baker, and she started a catering business from her home and was catering weddings and bar and bat mitzvahs and, you know, doing all of this right from, from her home. And the idea wasn't for her to create this six or seven figure business, but for her to be able to be home with her children and can have a business and bring money in and get them through the great depression and all of this stuff. And she was able to take the skill that she had and make money with it. And a lot of people are doing that right now, grandma, but in a different way, instead of main street, it's, you know, there's, they're able to do this from Instagram and these different ways. And I really think that that is such an important part of our economy and that it's not just a bunch of people being like, or like those few people being like the Walmart and the Amazon of online education, (laughs) because that could absolutely be the case. Now that I'm saying, I'm like, I've never thought of it like that before until you said that. I'm like, yes, like, we don't want this to just be like five big guys making all the money. Like we need a more healthy structure for this.
1: Exactly. And there'll always be. Big tech, of course, you know, just like here, we've got big tech and you've got all the startups and, you know, the growth-based companies or the companies that are growing. But the whole idea is that the industry is big enough that even if you have big tech, (laughs) you have all these other companies who are doing great things out there in the world and that have incredible skills and expertise and knowledge to share. And that's, I think
0: that's amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for getting my wheels turning. (laughs) Oh, very inspired. Oh from, from our conversation, how can we stay in touch with you?
1: So two ways to find me, Instagram, Des Berman. Uh, we we'll, we check our messages. We get lots of responses there and folks like to DM. So we're on there. And then my website, Destiny Berman, you'll find all kinds of of uh, free resources and podcast episodes and training. So those are the two best places to find
0: me. Okay, great. And of course we'll have all of that in the show notes as well. All right. Thank you so, so much, Destiny. This has been great. Can I just say thank you so much for listening? I don't think I say it enough, but I love that you are here. If you enjoyed today's episode or if you've been getting value from this podcast, would you do me a quick favor? Head on over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. When you leave a rating and review, it basically tells iTunes that they need to spread the word and tell more people about this podcast. And I am on a mission to get the word out. I'm so grateful for your support. We want to make sure to shout you out, too. So if you do leave a rating review keep your eyes and ears open we will be uh, either shouting out on the podcast or on Instagram stories